Welcome to the Formed in the Word podcast, a production of the Augustan Institute. Your hosts, Dr. Jim Prothro and Dr. Israel McGrew, will review the lectionary readings for this Sunday's Mass, explain their context, and help you to appreciate the Church's wisdom in selecting them. Hello. Welcome to Formed in the Word. I'm Israel McGrew. And I'm James Prothro. And we are professors at the Augustan Institute. Today we'll be looking at the lectionary readings for the Solemnity of Mary, Mother of God. We'll look at each reading in turn, and we'll look at their context and some of their main points, and draw out some of the continuity between the readings. In her wisdom, the Church has put together the lectionary uh, as a series of readings from the uh, Old and New Testaments uh, to draw us into and feed us on uh, the mystery of Christ each Sunday. And so we'll here reflect on the way in which Christ's coming is foreshadowed or foretold in the Old Testament uh, and how Christ fulfills the Old Testament uh, and uh, uh, reveals to us uh, who God is making us to be in him. And we are offering this as a resource uh, for lay people who want to enter in the readings more deeply so they can enter into the Mass more deeply, and also for priests as they are preparing their homilies um, so that they can enter themselves more deeply into the mystery of Christ so that they can draw their flock more deeply into the mystery of Christ. So in the spirit of Dei Verbum, right, uh, we are to feed on the table of the Eucharist, right, to be nourished on, by the sacrament, and we are to feed on also the table of the word. Uh, so I think Jim is going to start us with a word of prayer. Wonderful. Uh, and as we're preparing to uh, enter into and uh, get ready for the feast uh, of the Solemnity of Mary, Mother of God, uh, let's open just with a Hail Mary. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy, Holy Mary, Mary, Mother, Mother of God, God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. death. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And before we launch into looking at these readings, I think it would be helpful just to talk about the feast, Mary, Mother of God, just a little bit. Absolutely. Right. So obviously, as we're talking to a predominantly, um, perhaps entirely Catholic audience, um, this is a little bit of preaching to the choir, but I guess that's what we're always doing, right? Um but just to think about and put into historical and theological context what this feast is. Right? So this comes from Ephesus in 431. Uh, so in the 5th century, the, the title Theotokos, right, bearer of God, was popular in uh, popular worship. And some of the bishops weren't quite so sure, uh, particularly one of them, Nestorius. And then in the Council of Ephesus in 431, uh, they the, the church affirmed in council, um, in fact, this is an appropriate title for Mary. That's right, yeah. So uh, among all of the different feasts uh, in honor of Our Lady uh, that celebrate different apparitions or different sort of aspects of who she is for us, um, there's, of course, Mary, Mother of the Church, right? We, have, uh, we just finished the feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe um, uh, and the historic uh, and important uh, uh, apparition there. Um, here we have the solemnity of Mary, Mother of God. Um, and to, to give a little bit of kind of basic idea, uh, uh, the context to the basic idea of this and in, in, uh, the debates there um, at the council, um, so you had some people who were uncomfortable with calling Mary the Mother of God. They were happy to say that she was Jesus' mother, 
or that she was the mom maybe of like the human half of Jesus mm -hmm. kind of. But they wouldn't call her mother of God. Yeah. So Nestorius, the kind of arch heretic, if you will, it's probably not fair to him, but the proponent of this alternative position, the critic of the title Theotokos, um, his teaching was characterized as uh, teaching two sons, right? So there's the divine son and the human son. Yeah, it's sort of like Jesus's uh, divinity and his humanity, where some people compare it to like they were like they were two planks, like two boards next to each other, but they weren't actually one, right? So like Jesus eats, and his human nature is doing that. Jesus gets hungry, and his human nature does that. Jesus feels sad, and his human nature does that. And his divine and his divine nature is just sort of sitting there while all this is going on, going, "All right, human part, whatever," right? And then when uh, he did something miraculous, right, that his divine part took over um, and just sort of happened to be in a kind of human shell. That, that's, again, not quite fair to the way that Nestorius was trying to say this. But um, this is the way in which uh, the church looked at his position and said, that's what you're saying. And the, the uh, conversations that had been happening at the time were trying to figure out how Jesus's divinity and his humanity related to, it, to one another and that they're, they're distinct. He has two natures that are distinct and yet they're completely one. They can't be confused and sort of mushed up, um, but they can't be separated because there's one Christ. There's one mm -hmm. subject who does things. So when Christ gets sad, his divine nature right, is joined to his human nature. When he eats, right? when he heals lepers, and, of course, also when he dies, right? Yeah, that such we can that, say that, yeah. that so, so that you can say, right, that because of the union of the two natures, even though he only dies according to his humanity, the only reason he can die is because he has a body, right? And as but, you said, it's one subject. So yeah. it's, the question is, who's the he? Yeah, but who is right. it that dies? Well, mm. the whole Christ, God and man. And so when they brought that same theology then to Mary, right, Nestorius said, oh, sure, I, you know, I'm, I'm ready to believe you know, some of that. And then, uh, or some of the people, uh, sorry, the church said, yes, this is what we, uh, uh, what we believe. What about, what about Mary, though? Can't we just say that she's only the mom of a little part? Isn't it weird to say God has a mom? It's like, well, it's weird to say God died, but guess mm -hmm. what? He did. And in the person of the son, God has a mom. Yeah. Uh, and so they would say that it's one son with two sonships. He's mm. born once eternally um, of God the Father and then born in time for us and for our salvation. And so this second birth is about the economy of salvation um, in God the Son's extension of himself his condescension to our human frame. Mm. And, and, and why is that significant? Is this just like a little bit of academic ease kind of theology? Do you have to really believe that to really, right? Yeah, I mean, the rubber hits the road, as you said, um, who dies, right? One of my favorite kind of metaphors for thinking about Nestorian Christology, you know, as God, the word is kind of observing Jesus Christ die, is that of figure skaters, right? They're mm. working together and it's so lovely and beautiful. It can be truly moving. Um, but when it comes down to it, if the man drops the woman, she breaks her nose on the ice, you know, he's not the subject who is suffering. Whereas in the incarnation, because there's one subject, God the Son actually experiences the things that are proper to the human nature.
mm-hmm. and which God in his transcendent being cannot. And my second favorite example of where this really pays off is when you contemplate the agony in Gethsemane, right? God actually experiences agony. God in his human person, in taking on a human nature, God the Son prays to God the Father and experiences a no from God. Mm -hmm. And so it leads you into contemplating the mystery of salvation, the extent of God's love and self-emptying on our behalf. And so when we talk about Mary as Theotokos, you know, we're saying these things because they're true. And we're saying these things because this is what the church has discerned and taught in council. Um, But we're also talking about Mary in order to enter more deeply into Christ. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. The the title comes about mostly because of what we believe about Jesus. And what we believe about Jesus then tells us what we believe about Our Lady, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And the greatness of the honor that she received, because she wasn't just, right, a lady who happened to have a baby who then kind of was godified and by some special grace yeah or then he got some special grace or then he whatever no she actually received the grace and to say yes to it uh right which celebrated the feast of the annunciation right to say yes to um uh, the angel gabriel but also to bear the one who according to his divinity right and in himself is god Mm -hmm. she even raised him yeah. Uh, one of the verses that's not in our gospel reading today, but it's real close to it in uh, the gospel according to Luke, uh, says, you know, Jesus submitted to his parents and obeyed them, and he grew in stature and knowledge. And you think, well, his divine part doesn't grow, right, in itself, but his humanity does. But that means that the whole Christ, the one Christ together, right, grows and is being raised by Mary, that's a great, wonderful elevation, and we believe it about her because of the greatness that we know, right? The divinity that we know is in her son. And because Christ takes up, uh, you know, God the Son takes up the human nature in the incarnation, um, this also enriches how we think about salvation, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's also, I mean, we are humans. We partake in the human nature, and Christ, right, God the Son, partook in the human nature in a special way, uh, such that when God the Son became Jesus Christ and prayed to God the Father, now we too, are uh, as adopted sons, can pray to God the Father. Uh, so I think we should probably turn to our readings. That's right. They're going to take about. us right there. This yeah. is about our the what God has accomplished and what he's actually given uh, to us as humans. So we start with Numbers 6, 22 through 27. Um, this is the Aaronic blessing. And um, it's really brief, so I'll read it. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. This is actually a part of some liturgies. It's a common blessing that um, sometimes a, a priest will speak. And the you know the central image, right? This God blessing you is in, put in terms of God's making His face to shine upon you, to lift up His countenance upon you. 
And obviously, the transcendent deity doesn't have a face. God is not, in fact, a featherless biped. Um, and so this is what's called an anthropomorphism, right? Talking about God as though he has the morph, the form of an anthropos, of a human, right? And this is how we inevitably think about God. But strictly speaking, you know, the triune God and his eternal nature doesn't have a face. And so this is just a metaphorical way of talking about God's blessing us, God's accepting us, um, God's approval of us. And this is a, a way of mediating who God is, right? Scripture uses anthropomorphism to help us think about God, right? The Old Testament uses anthropomorphism to help us think about God, even using language that technically doesn't quite apply, right? God doesn't have a face, but we'll talk about God as though he has a face to help you think about God because you're a human and you think in human categories. Mm -hmm. right? um, and so there's a kind of a noetic mediation, right? A condescension in Revelation here. And there's also... Um, I guess it's inflected in another way too, right? Because it's the Lord speaks to Moses, telling Moses, speak to Aaron, telling Aaron to speak to the people. And so there's actually kind of a, an economy mm -hmm. of mediating this speech, right? Mediating the word of God so mm -hmm. that it can bless the people of God. Yeah, that's right. And uh, Thinking about that here and the mediation, and thinking about uh, uh, thinking about that in preparation to point ahead to uh, the celebration uh, of this feast, and also the readings that are coming. Um, right, God is revealed, and people are blessed, and they respond by glorifying God. But He's revealed through people. The priests here pray, "May the Lord make His face shine on you." But it's not all that long after they've seen Moses' face shining because Moses was sitting up on the mountaintop with the Lord and the reflected glory of the Lord, right, then came to rest on Moses in a way. Uh, Moses then, right, gives this to the priests and the priests say, may the Lord bless you and keep you. So it kind of sounds like a prayer that's just sort of being tossed up. But have a look at verse 27, right? The next comment from God when he gives this uh, command for this blessing, he says, so shall they put my name on the people of Israel and I will bless them. Uh, so it's not just sort of, I hope the Lord blesses you and then like maybe God will and maybe I won't. Like God has ordered it so that when they say this, when they give this blessing, that puts the Lord's holy name on the people by this prayer and God confers blessing through it. Um, and that's hopefully an encouragement to all of us uh, because just the same way that God's blessing comes through human beings, right? Most especially in Jesus Christ, mm -hmm. right? Through the mediation and the birth giving of Mary, right? Through his priests, through so many of us. Well, it, it's, it's true for us as well, right? That we who have the Holy Spirit can share, not in the same way, right? But to the same purpose and from the same God, right? share uh, the blessing of the Lord in prayer and in uh, our uh, life of blessing for other people. And so it's different and the same, um, particularly for lay people. Right? Mm -hmm. But there is an ordained priesthood, mm -hmm. which you know, if Moses in some way is you know a, a type of Christ as the mediator oh. of the Mosaic Covenant, as opposed to Christ as the mediator of the New Covenant. 
uh, as Moses installs a priesthood, so Christ installs a priesthood of which he is also you know, Aaron. He's also the high priest, mm-hmm. um, but he also gives us a priesthood. Yeah, right? that's right. That's right. So All what right. do we have for our psalm? So we have Psalm 67, which is a, a beautiful psalm. And it starts with, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. So it's obviously been intentionally paired because we have that same metaphor, that same image. And in the psalm, um, this the psalm incorporates the Gentiles, right? So it's talking about God's blessing to Israel with respect to the Gentiles. So in verses 2 and 3, or in the NAB 3 and 4, uh, that your way may be known on earth, that your saving power your saving power among all nations. So the idea is that God, in lifting up his face, his countenance, and shining upon Israel, will bless them, such that through Israel's blessing, the Gentiles will come to know who God is. And so there's a mediation um, through the Israelites to the Gentiles as well. Um, and the psalmist cries out, let the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. And in the last two verses, he says, the earth has yielded its increase. God, our God shall bless us. And so the psalm, you know, in, in its literal context, its kind of literal language, seems to be pointing towards material blessing, right? Because Israel, the people of God, at this point, it's a polity, right? It's a political people. And this is part of how the nations see them and will look at them and say, oh, their God is blessing them. Therefore, we can um, recognize in the final verse, God shall bless us, let all the ends of the earth fear him. And so there's, um, you know, if God's name has been put on the people of Israel and God is blessing them, it's, you know, God is mediating his name to the nations through the people of Israel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Always makes me think of the... Um, Second commandment, and mm. oddly, uh, in a different kind of a way, right, um, of not taking the Lord's name in vain, or more positively, calling upon God's name, honoring it, revering it, both in how we talk, right, and not just sort of saying it flippantly, uh, but but also then how we live if we're the people on whom the Lord's name has been put in our baptism. Uh, the Israel, right, expects God's glory to go, uh, a blessing to be revealed through them and from them and from God's blessing on them to others. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, there's also all of those other passages in which uh, God says, it's in Isaiah uh, 52, I think it's one, or 25, um, uh, is uh, one of them. It says, my name is being blasphemed among the nations because of you. Yeah. Uh, so and, Ezekiel talks about this quite a bit. Right? Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> you guys are being sinful and you're blaspheming my name. So I'm going to send you into exile. And now you're in exile and the Gentiles are making fun of you and like, oh, your God couldn't. Now I'm being blasphemed again. Yeah. So yeah, God's yeah. God. He's in a catch 22 in Ezekiel. Exactly. <laughs> right. Because God has put his name on the people of Israel. Uh, now he's painted himself into a corner, right? a corner he wants to be painted into right, out of his love and solidarity with the people. Um, and so their sin is a problem. It's blaspheming God's name. And their punishment is a problem. They're blaspheming God's name. And so God has no choice but to resolve their sin mm. as the mm. only way to sanctify his name. 
Yeah, that's right. Uh, you can look that up in Ezekiel 36 is probably the clearest yeah, place. That sounds to get about that. right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then Isaiah actually kind of flips this around a little bit in 52 and 53 in terms of it's actually through Israel's corporate suffering and right, the suffering of the servant um, that God actually reveals his salvation mm-hmm, ultimately. Mm-hmm, but. Mm-hmm. But that's a whole that's other right. can of worms. We better move well, on that, to Galatians. <laughs> that actually, that actually will will take us to Galatians um, in one way. So, moving on to the New Testament, um, our reading from Galatians, Galatians chapter four, verses four through seven, um, and Paul is in the midst of his continued argument to try to get the Galatian Gentiles, right, people who aren't ethnically Jewish, don't have a background in Judaism, not to go get circumcised. Because there's a group of people who's been saying, if you want to be Christian, you can't just believe and follow Jesus, right, and live according to his teaching. You have to make sure that you join Jesus's family because Jesus's family is Israel. Um, And so one of the things that uh, Paul will do uh, is recall many of these uh, passages in which, right, God's work in Israel, right, is God's work in Israel and through Israel for the world, and it's all encapsulated in Jesus Christ, who is a Jew, who is an Israelite, right? who is from the tribe of Judah, and in whom then all the nations are blessed. So in our previous theme of mediation, right, we know that the Gentiles are being incorporated into Israel through Jesus, and so we know that that's the mediation. That's right. But we don't know exactly how that's being mediated. That's the question that they're wrestling with. Yeah. The so the yeah. So the the people who are telling the uh, Galatian uh, believers that they have to get circumcised are also believers in Jesus that Paul is having conflict with, and mm-hmm. you can see this in Acts chapter fifteen if you go there. Um, uh, uh, but they are like, oh well, how how is it that you guys mm-hmm. join into Jesus? Well, you join by becoming part of the family. And you join this family by doing the things that this family does. You get circumcised. You don't work on the Sabbath. You keep the food laws, uh, right? Purity laws. Whereas Paul is going to say, no, the whole thing is done by the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, so just a, a couple of uh, notes here. If you flip back to Galatians 3, uh, verse 16. Paul points back to the promise to Abraham that in Abraham's seed or offspring, God will bless all the world and all the families of the earth. And Paul says, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And he says, it's a singular word. Which is funny because it's a it, collective word. <laughs> that's true, but he's he's but this is his, this is the way that he argues for it. But it's not a grammatical argument he's making, right? It's a narrative argument in terms of Isaac, not Ishmael, right? So there's already the singular singular seed in Genesis as well, right? Because Abraham has nine sons. That's right. I think I, specifically, I, I think he's allegorizing here and playing on mm-hmm. the on the grammar, but it also fits the way that he does it in Romans with. Yeah. Uh, Isaac and not Ishmael. He'll mm-hmm. do the same thing in Galatians four. Right. Um, but the the main the main point is this, right? Uh, the main point is this: that the promises to Abraham are fulfilled through his one offspring. That happens with Abraham's first two kids, right? With Ishmael and Isaac. That only Isaac gets the line of promise to continue that down. And Isaac hands it to Jacob. And Jacob hands it to his children. 
But this Redeemer who will bless the world, Christ, will only be born through one of those kids. So it goes to Judah. And then we continue on and continue on and continue on. And Paul then says, right, he's not referring to many offsprings, right, like a sort of whole bunch of them at once, but to your off, but to, he says, and to your offspring who is Christ. So if you think about the offspring of Abraham or the seed of Abraham or the descendants of Abraham, right, being the way through which blessing comes to the world and this blessing of salvation, right, that God sends, uh, you could capitalize the O of offspring and the D in descendant, right, the one descendant that has been promised through whom all of this will happen. And Israel has been taking part in that up until this day, and the church will take part in that after that day, but all of it comes to a head in the one offspring, the one capital D descendant of Abraham who brings eternal blessing to the world, which is Jesus. Um, and that's kind of the background for where he uh, uh, um, uh, goes in chapter four. In chapter four, right, Paul says, look, we used to be enslaved under sin. Uh, we were underneath the law on purpose, right? God put the sinful world, or particularly Israel, under the law uh, of God so that they would learn from him, that they would learn about their sin, they would learn their need for a savior, they would learn ways of worshiping and properly responding to God, they would learn right from wrong in the Ten Commandments and many other laws, they would also be right protected from the other nations by a lot of these laws that made them weird right mm -hmm. like the uh, uh food laws out. and other things yeah they're supposed to be conspicuous and stick mm -hmm. out right so that people can look uh and say this nation is one that's different and their god is different actually moses says that in deuteronomy 4 verses 5 through 8 or is it 5 4 through 8 i think it's 4 5 through 8 where he says i'm giving you all of these laws that the lord has said now so that when you obey them, the other nations around you will see and say, what nation is it that has laws that are that just and righteous? And what nation is it that has a God like that one? Right? Yeah. Um, uh, so all of the law has done that, uh, but it wasn't the thing that was meant to save, right? Not circumcision, not any of the other things. The thing that's meant to save is the coming of that descendant, Jesus Christ, who brings the blessing of salvation. And he says, we used to be right under all of those kinds of things, and even under the law. But when the fullness of time came, God sent his son, born of woman, there's Mary, and born under the law. Jesus doesn't come sort of like from out of nowhere, out of left field, like God was doing some Israel stuff and isn't your Old Testament kind of nice. And then here comes Jesus, right? He could have come from anywhere, but he just happened to come in Judah. No. Jesus comes through as the descendant of Abraham, capital D. He says in verse 5, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption right, as God's children, as God's sons. And he's done this by sending the Holy Spirit. Now, who does the Spirit belong to properly? The Father and the Son. The receiving the Spirit joins you to something that right, otherwise we're not, joins us to that mm -hmm. son, not only the son of Mary and descendant of Abraham, but the son of God himself who is eternal, full of divine life. 
And by the Holy Spirit, right, when that spirit becomes our spirit, right, when that spirit is joined to our spirit, let's say, right, we get joined to his sonship so that we become descendants, little d, descendants of Abraham by faith, by the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and now we, right, in Christ, right, are part of the sharing of his blessing to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And that comes about through Jesus coming through Israel and from Israel. And he did that by coming through Mary. Yeah. So right? Mary is woman. one of the mediators of this economy. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It's all handed, it's handed down at that point uh, in the birth of Jesus through Mary and comes to be. Um, let's scoot over uh, now to our gospel reading from the gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 2, verses 16 to 21. Uh, and this is, this is a Christmas reading, mm -hmm. right, uh, where the shepherds uh, have heard from the angel that they need to go see Mary. Right? They'll find the child with its mother, and he is the Savior, Christ the Lord. And so they go, and uh, they find Mary and Joseph with the baby in a manger, and they tell them about what happened, and Mary keeps all of these things and ponders them in her heart. And the shepherds go away, and they glorify and praise God for everything they'd heard and seen, just the way it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when Jesus was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name that had been given by the angel. <laughs> Uh, and so connecting with our other material here, we see two things. Um, number one is here in the gospel, the fulfillment of Jesus's coming as the descendant of Abraham, right? As one of the people of Israel uh, in his circumcision, mm -hmm. right? that he subjects himself to the law of Moses, the very one from which he will redeem all those who are under it. And also we see that same pattern, don't we? Where here's Mary and Jesus, her son, with Joseph, outsiders, shepherds, come, mm. they see, they're amazed, right? they encounter the wonderful right, blessing and, and the, the literal face of the Lord. Yes. <laughs> and what do they do? They go home praising and glorifying God. Yeah, because if the Old Testament uses metaphorical language, right, anthropomorphism, talking about God as though he has a morph, a form of a human um, in the incarnation. God <laughs> anthropomorphizes himself, takes on, and right, this is the word that uh, Philippians 2 uses. He takes on the morphe, the form of a servant, mm -hmm. right, taking on the form of a human so that we can understand him, right? This is why the church talks about Christ as the sacrament of God, because he is the mm -hmm. physical reality that makes God present such that we can understand God a little more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, amen. And it calls us always, right, as we encounter um, the Lord uh, through different ways that he's mediated to us in the Eucharist, in the person of the priests, right, in their ministry, and also in his holy word in the scriptures, mm -hmm. right, that we come, we encounter him in some way here through words, through another person, right, in uh, the host, and that we leave and glorify God and thank him and also obey him so that we can show forth his glory and righteousness to and everyone else. The same way Mary did. <laughs> Stole my thunder. Oh, sorry. <laughs> so, as saying, as the church is doing so, imitating Mary or as Mary operates as an icon of the church, 
Mary, the mediator of the word of God. Absolutely. Mary, the mediator of the sacrament of God, Christ, mm -hmm. as the church continues to mediate to feed us on both tables of sacrament and word. That's right. That's right. That's beautiful. And that's a great way to wrap up uh, this thought about uh, Mary's motherhood and the way mm -hmm. in which she, um, uh, as the mother of God, and the way in which she brings all of that into the world. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I think that about does it for today. Um, may God draw you ever more deeply into the mystery of Christ um, as you prepare yourself to receive Christ in word and in sacrament. God bless you. God bless. This has been a Formed in the Word podcast, a production of the Augustan Institute. For more inspiring and informative content like this, please visit formed.org.